Welcome to Participate. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On this week's podcast, I'll get into the weeds with Julie about the difference between what people call a PLN and a community of practice. Our guest this week is educator Tavia Clark. So let's get started. So, Julie. Mike. Last week, we talked about a pretty common term in marketing circles called a, a call to action. Pretty common. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. used in a lot of different ways and and by a lot of different people. And this week, I'd love to talk about another common term. And it's funny that this this actually comes up in our interview with Tavia as well. Yeah, she actually answers it pretty well, too. Yeah. Which is really great. So you got some you got some crib notes, you know, from Tavia that you can steal. <laughs> um, yeah. So a PLN or a professional learning network yeah. is most commonly associated with people who you follow or engage with on social media. Um, You know, in educator circles, it's commonly Twitter uh, related to your work. You know, some professionals, sales professionals, I'm sure would refer to PLNs on LinkedIn and stuff like that as well. But the idea being that as you participate and engage in PLNs, you learn from the people you follow. Julie, I'm curious what you see are the substantial differences between what we refer to as a PLN and what we at Participate refer to as a community of practice. What's the same? What's a little bit different? What's what's really different even? So I guess the first thing I would say would be sheer size. You know, not always there's this distinction, but a lot of times your professional learning network could be very large. So let's say you've been on Twitter for a while and you have X thousands number of um, followers. Let's say for sake of argument, you were intentional about that, right? That could literally span your interests. So you, Mike, are an educator. You've worked also in sales and marketing. You've also worked, you're very active in the games-based learning community. You're very active just in the games community, not even thinking about just games and learning, streaming, podcasting, so on. As you sort of you know, expand your interest, your professional learning network is going to grow very, very large. And if you're fortunate, like we are to be really be able to do the work that we're passionate about. So I think for communities of practice, that is really around the domain. So within that larger professional learning network that you have, Mike, you have specific communities of practice, right? Think about the work that you did um, just on the deeper games, right? Where you're kind of going into the weeds of a game over weeks. That community of practice is sustained. There's a set number of folks that are really coming together. And Tavia really speaks to this very well, where it's not just somebody that you might DM every once in a while and sort of check in about something. You're in this sort of sustained interaction over a certain amount of time to do a certain thing within a certain domain. And I think that's the biggest different. A professional learning network can really span multiple areas of interest. Every person is, is has multiple identities, right? We all have these different things that we're interested in. And so I think that's really, for me, the substantial interest is really the potential size of a network as well as the multiple domains that it could include. Would you say that there's a difference in like the 
type of learning that happens in a PLN versus the type of learning that happens in a community practice? Or do you think that those are generally the same? I think it really just depends. I think PLNs can be communities of practice. So having said what I said before, let's say you're just talking about your professional learning network around, again, just using you because you're on the other side of this uh, conversation as games, right? Around sort of a gaming topic, your professional learning network around games and you guys meet and gals meet over certain amounts of time, that can be a community of practice, but it really has to have sort of a set set of practices, not just sort of random conversation or even random connection. It is really like you're coming around a certain area of this domain to really work at stuff. And so that can be a professional learning network around that, but it really, to be a community of practice really requires that P with a capital P. Practice with a capital P. And so I guess I guess the the big takeaway is also intentionality. Yes. Like the idea that yes, for sure. you know, you can your social media PLN can be a community of practice, but it isn't necessarily a community of practice by default. That's right. And that depends on you and how you handle social media, what you choose to do with it. Um, one of the other things I guess that for me personally I consider is that I do social media different depending on the platform. Yeah, me too. Um, so, so where Twitter is very wide but, but has these separate domains of interest and they're all there, um, where Facebook is a very small community of my friends and educators mm-hmm. that I know personally and have met you know, and and yep, and, and align with more interests than just our professional interests, mm-hmm. but even like our personal interests. And then there's LinkedIn, which is definitely um, seen as more of a business, mm-hmm. um, you know, work kind of social network. Not really a community of practice, though, for sure. And and I would even say Facebook isn't for me either. But but. You know, I'm not even sure Twitter is for me either. But some subset of those professional networks, you are engaged in a community of practice with. Some some set of those networks on any given month or any given instance, you are probably, those people are also connected to you on those other platforms just in these wider networks. But every once in a while, you guys are going to group up Mm. and you're going to kind of engage in a community practice. And that may then happen. You may then choose the platform, right? That may... Who knows how that might happen? Well, and I guess that's what's good about a place like Participate, where yep. my social network on Twitter is is huge. It's like 9,000 yeah. or so people. Yeah. But small subsets of those groups of people end up coming together on Participate, be it in the, the sandbox community or the game-based right. learning community or whatever other community we have there. And that's where um, I'm moving people um, from a wide um range of a of a PLN to a community of practice with intentionality. Exactly. And I think that connects right to our inner and outer loop. You can see that outer loop as your professional learning network. And you can see again when you draw them into that inner loop, that's your community of practice. Yep. I mean that's how I see it. I, I love when I ask questions and we just we solve all of the problems, we Julie. Solve all of the problems. It's so great. Friends, when we come back, we're gonna have an amazing conversation with Tavia Clark, so stay with us. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Tavia Clark is a learning experience designer for Clarity Innovations in Portland, Oregon, where she works with a team to create content that leads to meaningful learning experiences for students and educators. 
Prior to working for Clarity Innovations, she was the digital learning coach at the Friday Institute at NC State University and was previously a school librarian for eight years and a high school English teacher for five years. Welcome to the podcast, Tavia. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we dive in, I'd love for you to go a little deeper into your background. Mm -hmm. Um, You've had some incredible experiences in education, and it'd be great to share some of those with our audience. Yeah, sure. So like you said, I started my career in education as a high school English teacher. I did that for five years, um, mostly in Northeastern North Carolina, where I grew up. Um, so I kind of was one of those kids that went back home to teach and um, decided um, around my fifth year in the classroom that I wanted to do more um, or something different. And so I decided um, to move into the library at the school that I was already teaching at, which was an interesting move um, because I still had to apply for the position and, you know, mm. win the position um, was interesting. And so I was a school librarian for eight years um, at two different schools in Northeastern North Carolina, just a couple of counties over from each other. Um, and that is probably what I would say catapulted me into my love of learning experience design, professional learning, um, and things like that. I It was a very different role. Um, I still got to work with my same colleagues. However, I was mu- functioning much more as um, a librarian and kind of as an instructional coach in some ways yeah. in the building mm-hmm. because we didn't have that in that district um, as a lot of districts and especially Northeastern North Carolina don't have instructional coaches in every building. Um, and so that was really interesting and did that for a while and was actually um, able to participate in a coaching program that was uh, supported uh, in part by Friday Institute prior to working there, um, the North Carolina Digital Leaders Coaching Network, or NCDLCN for short. Um, (laughs) And I got got to do that, which was really awesome. That was a year-long commitment. Um, And it was really great because even though I was not serving my school or my district as an instructional coach, I was doing a lot of coaching from within my role, um, which is what I began to see that a lot of people were doing across the state. Um, And so it helped me to really, um, you know, hone my skills, um, ramp up the dispositions that it takes in order to coach. And so I did that. And then um, without knowing that the following year I would actually be working at Friday Institute, um, they had uh, a position come open on the PLLC team, um, which is one of the many teams within the Institute. And so I applied and um, got the job as a digital innovation coach. along with a lot of educators who I had learned from and worked beside, um, and then also got to, through that position, um, facilitate in CDLCN the following few years. So that was kind of cool to actually participate in the program and then become a facilitator for the program. Um, Yeah, and so I did a lot of work across the state, uh, did um, lots of coaching uh, K-12, Um, Even though my experience was high school, one of my first roles at uh, Friday Institute was coaching um, elementary school teachers in Alamance, Burlington. Um, So that was very interesting because I had never taught elementary school, but I learned very quickly that um, being a good coach, you know, it didn't matter that I hadn't taught elementary school because there's so many more nuances to coaching than just, you know, knowing that content that the teachers are teaching. So that was really cool. 
Um, but I also uh, had contracts with lots of districts across the state, worked on dig digital innovation programs, a lot of rolling out one-to-one -one programs across the state, um, helping uh, districts that had received Golden Leaf funding um, and were you know, trying to get technology into their students' and teachers' hands. Um, and so it was really great. I got to actually go back to the town that I grew up in, and I had a school there that I worked with, which was really fun. Um, got to actually coach and do professional learning for people who had been my teachers when I was in school. So that was <laughs> awesome. interesting. Um, and yeah, so it, it was really great. You know, we ran the, we, we ran the gamut there. We did training and um, we did professional learning from superintendents you know, all the way down to educators. So it was, it was really great. It helped to uh, broaden the experience that I was able to um, gain. And I just, I learned so much about um, the tie between coaching and um, learning experience design and how much they support and also lean on each other. Uh, yeah, and so then I ended up leaving Friday Institute and came out West. Where I'm at now, I served for um, about eight months as um, a TOSA, which is what they call like um, instructional technology facilitators out here. Uh, it's just a teacher on special assignment um, in a pretty large school district in um, Southwest Washington, uh, right across the river from Portland. Uh, worked with um, a colleague who I had met through um, Friday Institute. His name is Tim Lauer. Um, he's pretty big in the education world out here, out in the West here, um, been a principal for a long time, was in charge of instructional technology in the district that I came out here to work in. Um, did that for a little bit and then ended up scoring my job at Clarity. Uh, so this is my actual first job outside of public education in private industry. And it's been really fun. Um, and I'm you know, it's almost been two years since I've started at Clarity. It'll be two years in February. And I'm just, I'm learning so, so much, but I'm also really, I continuously become more excited at how many of my skills from my public ed life transfer into private industry. And we do work within ed tech, so we're still within the education sphere, but I just really love how many of the skills that I've honed in that what was I, my prior life. <laughs> and I'm able to use those now um, as a learning experience designer at Clarity. Awesome. So you talked about one-to-one, -one, rolling out one-to-one -one programs and mm -hmm. about using technology in the classroom and integrating technology in, in education. And I'll tell you, no better time than now to have experiences like that mm -hmm. uh, um, across probably not just education, but a, across all industry, teaching everyone how to use technology to work and learn and live remotely. But you've had a lot of experience with learning experience design um, in K-12 in particular, mm -hmm. um, both online and in person. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your, you know, your deeper work in, in that specifically? And what led you to being interested in that type of work? Yeah, sure. While I was teaching and a high school librarian, I, I didn't realize that what I was doing was learning experience design. I think I had never mm. um, called it that before. I was just, you know, helping teachers create lessons for kids. I was 
um, you know, leading and facilitating PD, but I had never put that under the umbrella of, of, of learning experience design. And I, I learned quickly when I moved to FI that that's what that was. Um, and so I think that my, my work with that started a long time ago. And when I started working at Friday Institute, and that was what I did, um, whether it was creating experiences that were going to be delivered face to face, whether it was creating asynchronous experiences that, you know, educators would do online um, or whether I was actually delivering virtually because we did some of that. I did some of that, too, with some of my school districts that I worked with, especially the ones that were way out west um, because weather became quite an issue of me traveling there to do face to face. Um, and so I, I really honed my my what I would call the craft of that um, in working at Friday Institute. But um, one of the things that I, I realized is I just hadn't taken the time to really think about, um, I was doing it and I was so involved in doing it and I was doing so much of it that I hadn't sat down and put on paper like what it actually looks like. Like when I go through the design process of creating an experience for whoever it's for, um, and honestly, whether it's, adults or students, there are definitely, um, you know, things that I'm using and things that I'm keeping front of mind as I, as I design these experiences. And so um, I hadn't really thought much about that. And when I got to Clarity, um, you know, I brought a different experience to my team um, because I, I had, I had been teaching longer than anyone on staff. And so I had had sort of some different experiences and I started putting it out, putting it down on paper, you know, really thinking about what does, what do I go through in my mind when I start to design these experiences? And so, um, you know, I, I kind of created some, you know, I've created some, you know, blog posting and some collateral for the company that kind of helps to sort of spell some of that out. Um, but I realized as I did this, that I had been doing these things for a long time. I just hadn't really known that I was doing it until I started to think about it and break it down. Um, and one of the things that I'm finding now in private industry is that a lot of the way that I approach learning experience design hasn't changed. I mean, it evolves as needs evolve and as education is transforming. But what I'm finding is that I'm learning how to think about it more at scale. And as opposed to going into one district and serving one school or serving 10 schools, now I'm thinking about working with clients and creating learning um, experiences that might serve the entire country, you know, or could also serve like international um, audiences. And so I, I'm learning to take these principles that I use when I design and think about them also at scale, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I was I was thinking, you know, as you're as you're sort of talking about, because I think this is very true of a lot of educators of not naming what they do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really interesting that you started to kind of pull back and see all of the things that you do as a teacher. And I think also thinking about that transition from teacher to librarian, mm -hmm. you know, really pulling back from what you did with students to then working with teachers more broadly. And you can really see through as you described the pathway of your career, how you sort of you know, went up, 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 you know, almost now at a, at a much more bird's eye view. So I think thinking about that, two things I, I'm curious, yes, specific things that really okay. um, you think are so important for the components of learning experience. Um, 
And then you said something I think is really interesting, which is the importance of coaching in that as well and how you see those connected and, and how you sort of build that in, particularly as you think about scale. Um, because as you know, you know, participates really interested in the social learning piece. And I, and I do think that coaching plus learning design is really where that social learning um, kind of comes into play. So yeah, I'd love to hear some even more specifics of what you have in mind there. I really do. I, I appreciate that point. And, um, and obviously that's something that I really appreciate about participate is that, um, learning is really social. And I think that the more that we, um, work towards that, the more that we support that and embrace that, I think it's a lot easier to pull in that coaching piece and to also like shed light on the fact that that is a really important and often excluded part of thinking about designing learning experiences, especially when we think about um, getting away from designing things as one-offs and rather designing experiences that are a little more recursive. Um, and so, yeah, so um, there's like, there's a lot of things that I think about, but just some of the ones that I think come front of mind are, and they're very simple. None of these things are like, you know, groundbreaking. Um, but I think that there's also um, a lot of beauty in the simple things. Um, and I also try to create experiences that can be replicated. Um, I really believe in the idea of teaching people how to fish rather than just handing them fish. Um, because I think that that is, I mean, that's, that's what we're here to do, you know. So, um, okay. So for instance, I, I always think about things like making a learning experience you know, pretty uh, content specific and, and content is, is a, I use that in quotation marks because I don't necessarily mean content in the sense of, you know, ELA, literacy, word decoding. Like I don't mean it like that, um, but keeping things uh, where we do have goals and we're really transparent about what those goals might be, um, but that we also are designing the content in a way where um, participants can automatically or at least by the end of the experience visualize and then actualize how uh what they're learning is going to intentionally affect students and their practice and i think that when we make it content specific and we're very transparent about what that is it's going to help them much more be much more able to visualize that um, in their practice um, another thing i think is really important is that um there has to be some form of hands-on time now that's harder when we're virtual uh, because, you know, we aren't sitting at tables with chart paper and markers and post-its, which I absolutely love. And I can't wait until we get to do those types of experiences again. Um, but I do think that hands-on, while it has to look different virtually, to me, sort of the point is um, it's the learning is resulting in something that participants can use in their practice with students. And hopefully some of that is immediate use. It's things they can walk away from the experience with and use, whether that's a protocol or a strategy or an activity. Um, it also could just be something as simple as working through um, a crucial conversation or a coaching conversation, and then which they can then take and use with students. Because at the end of the day, you know, educators really are working as facilitators and coaches too with their kids. And so I think that um, being able to provide even little tiny um, experiences that give them that so that they can take it and use it is really important. Um, one thing that I, especially like when I was doing my face-to-face -face PD, one of the things that was always really, really important for me um, 
was modeling and acknowledging instructional practice. Um, so one of the things that I didn't like in, P in PD or professional learning is um, just sit and get or when I would do a lot of stuff. It could be very busy during a professional learning experience, but it never felt like what was being modeled was actually something I could do with kids. And so when I try to design instructional learning experiences, I try to do things in a way that are going um, to model a good practice. So it doesn't matter what content we're going over. It doesn't matter that our um, you know, reason for the PD is gonna be much different than you know, a teacher's reason for teaching students, right? Um, it's we can still model those instructional practices. We can still use protocols and strategies. Um, we can use, um, you know, make sure that we're including a lot of conversation and discussion, you know, the things that, especially now, things that are gonna help us feel more connected with learning because we're all through a screen. Um, and so any chance that we get to feel connected is really important. And one of the ways that I, I do this um, in learning experiences is that I build in and I take time to not only actively model those practices, but then a lot of times after a particular activity or protocol is over, um, I will work with the educators to decompose those teaching strategies and those protocols. So we will actually like, mo I'll model them. And then we're gonna talk intentionally about the pedagogical choices that um, were made to build that experience. So we kind of break it down so that they can understand why something was chosen or possibly challenge it and say, hey, had you thought about this? Or what if we had tried to tweak it and do it this way instead? And I always, always end with, you know, how can we use this in the classroom? What feels like it would be, you know, applicable to the classroom? How, you know, what would your students benefit from or how might you change this to make this work? Um, and those are often some of the richest conversations, you know, right. And, and it, it isn't even about like necessarily what they're learning, um, whatever the content could be. It could be anything. The content could be who knows what. Um, but those are some of the richest conversations because what happens is, you know, people get really engaged in the learning during a learning experience and they don't even realize that they're actually learning pedagogical practices as well. Yeah. I was curious about, um, because I, I literally earlier today had this conversation about what we see as real connection between the work that you do with teachers and now this sort of broader conversation around adult learning. So this is kind mm -hmm. of coming up in a lot of spots. We're working with a lot of organizations, I know you do too, that are sometimes mm -hmm. out of the K-12 or even out of the P-20 sector. And I'm yeah. just curious about really that conversation and what you know about working with teachers who are adults. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and our learners about yes. how that's how that's translating to sort of other industries that you work with or just are in contact with or even internally at clarity i'm yeah. obsessed with i'm obsessed with this question yeah. like <laughs> the the answer to this consumes my my thoughts because i think we know a lot right yeah well it's you know because i use i keep that front of mind always acknowledging instructional practice um Instruction, like you said, is it isn't limited to K-12. It's not limited, you know, it it's not limited to that at all. Um, and so um it there are there have been times at Clarity I've um been asked to lead learning experiences that we've done as a company, and I haven't really approached them much differently than I would with teachers. I still think about all of these things and I consider the idea that, you know 
when I say modeling instructional practices, we'll know like my colleagues and I aren't going into classrooms and teaching kids every day. However, when I design a learning experience for my colleagues, you know, the same types of things come come up front. I want to give people time to talk to each other. I want to give people time for reflection. I want to give people time for feedback. Um, I want to make sure that when we're doing um, a protocol or a strategy, that it's something that they could take and then maybe use um, and ha we have used in client meetings. Um, you know, a lot of times when we do strategy work, a lot of that work revolves around kind of intentionally choosing the types of experiences that you uh, have your clients work through, um, especially if your time is limited and you need to get to a specific outcome. Um, so using like protocols and strategies, uh, we can use them internally and um, people are almost immediately able to see how that could be really helpful with a client because it can direct a conversation to an outcome, um, but by still leaving room for space uh, for people to actually feel some ownership and agency and, and things like that. Um, so I, I do think that, I think that there's a lot to be learned from the way that we design learning experiences as far as um, for education. Uh, moving into private industry. I, I have seen that. I have seen that I have been able to bring a lot of what I have learned and it has benefited the company that I work for um, in more ways than just the experiences. Um, you know, things like onboarding. Um, I have totally, re, uh, with the help of colleagues, revamped the onboarding process at Clarity. Um, and also professional um, growth and, and our professional focus plans. Those have been completely revamped and um, that was just because I asked a question. I said, what's the tool? I need to do this because I, I, I'm used, I'm a teacher. Like I'm used to every year professional focus plan, you know, like I'm used to doing it at the beginning of the year. It helps me. It's how I measure um, what's the tool that we use. And it was like, hmm, well, we don't <laughs> have a great tool for that. And I said, okay, good. I'm going like to go make one for myself because I need that. And they said, well, how about instead of making one for yourself, why don't you work with him and maybe you guys can come up with something for everyone? And so we did. And like, this has been the first year that, that we've done it. <laughs> um, and if if you've taught in North Carolina, it will look very similar to, you know, the types the of kind of learning plan that we come up with. But it's so it's just so interesting because I I mean, honestly, learning is learning. And I think that by by t by coming in like internally at my company and showing that learning isn't sit and get, it doesn't mean that someone talks at you for 90 minutes. You can get up, you can move around. And I'm like, get, I like, I, I brought in chart paper, markers and sticky notes. And I'm like, this is how we learn. Like put this stuff up on the walls, get your markers out, do use your sticky notes. Like learning should have movement. It should be exciting. Um, you know, and you should be talking to lots of people the whole time. Um, and so I, I do think that um, I think a lot of what we do in education can be modeled um, in private industry. And I, and I think that um, with other clients, like just, you know, doing things like during strategy where we actually have uh, protocols and activities for them to do to get to that outcome, they, they love that. And I've even seen some of our clients take those things back and use those internally. It is there is there is so little difference in my mind, and it's becoming less and less the more I think about it between the way that adults like to learn and the way kids like to learn. The daylight between those is so small these days, and I think it's becoming less and less. And so I keep saying around here is is like 
we got to just remember, like, because Participate is a company full of educators, too, right? And so I can talk about the classroom and say, just think about the way that you would teach students. And then let's apply some of those lessons to the way adults learn, because I honestly don't think that there's a, there's a ton of difference. Not in like the, the, the macro sense, like these big ideas are so similar. Am, am I right with that? I think you're totally right. I have said that my whole career, almost 20 years of teaching now. And I have said that you know, adults don't learn that much differently than kids. And you're right on the macro level, learning is learning. I mean, our brains work differently, right? Um, yeah. We know that. Yeah. So there's nuance that's slightly different. I think the things you have to remind adults how to do is to explore for the sake of it, right? So kids will explore yes. for the sake of it without thinking about that direct application. And I think yep. that's kind of like doing that balance to give adults the time to play and explore mm -hmm. without immediately thinking about here, you know, so it's like you need that practical applicability, mm -hmm. right? Like you were saying that teachers need that, adult learners need that, but then really pushing them to really want to explore and play, which they're not always inclined to or get the opportunity right. to do. That's, I think that's the only difference. They don't always feel that they have permission to do that. Right. And yes, I think that that's, that's right. another thing is like, yeah, you know, I sat through a lot of PD in my life where I was just like, oh my gosh, like They're I would never me. make my kids do this. I would never <laughs> teach my kids 100%. this way. And it wasn't because those people didn't intentionally try to design something for me that was going to help me learn. It was just that I was... I understood that, yeah, I could learn this way, but my kids will never be able to. And um, and so, yeah, I think that it's giving people the permission to understand that um, that this time is our time to, like you said, Julie, explore, take some risks. Like if you're going to fail, let's fail now in front of each other where we can talk about it and laugh about it and, you know, give each other feedback on it rather than fail in front of kids, even though we know it's okay to fail in front of kids, but it feels safer, right? To fail in front of our, our peers where we can like immediately work on that. Um, and I also, I just think that, you know, we expect teachers to be um, these facilitators that can guide kids and all of these amazing learning experiences, but we don't ever give them time to practice that themselves. And to me, that's what I wanted to do differently. I wanted to create learning experiences that gave teachers the ability to feel like a student, because I feel like I felt that if they could experience learning the way that we expect their kids to experience learning, then that would help them build confidence because that's a big thing is building confidence and being able to create those learning experiences and facilitate them and lead them but it would also show them that like it's okay to do it that way when do you think fun became a dirty word in learning experience design for adults like i just don't have a sense of when it got lost that like that we say all the time kids want a fun engaging interesting learning environment when did we stop thinking that adults don't want that? Like at what age, at what, like what happened? Well, I can tell you in my career where I think that it started. I mean, I've taught mostly in North Carolina, only one year in a different state. Um, I think it's when the stakes get high and when I become responsible for subjects that are tested. Um, I think that that is a direct tie because while I'm still being told that learning the word I, you know, the word fun doesn't even really come up. You don't really hear a lot about fun and joy, or I didn't used to. It was all engagement. 
like know your students are engaged. They have to be engaged, right? We didn't really talk about engagement as actually being like practicing fun and joy. It was just like, are they engaged? Are they doing what you're wanting them to do? Um, and I think a lot of it for me revolved around this, you know, like high stakes testing because, you know, I taught, I taught ELA. I mean, I taught high school ELA. Um, I taught ninth and 10th grade most of the time. Both of those subjects were highly tested in North Carolina. Um, and so there, that was always an end result for me as a teacher. Um, and I feel like it's, the one of the message that's coming to teachers is make this engaging for kids, but in their own learning experiences, it's all about how are you going to get those test scores up. Um, and I mean, that's like, you know, in our sphere of influence, testing is way outside, right? Like it isn't necessarily something that we can control, but I've always believed that there are ways that we can still, you know, create these experiences so that teachers can understand and feel what it can feel like to have fun and joy in learning. Um, and, and if we don't do that for them, then I don't understand how we are expecting them to replicate that in a classroom. Like it just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. You can be engaged and not be having fun. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Right. And that's the lesson. That is like the lesson of learning experience design. Mm -hmm. Maybe like at its base level is just mm -hmm. cause, just cause you're doing it and actively doing it and focused on doing it doesn't mean you're enjoying it in the least. Yep. I mean, I worked at a at a private school that was very high stakes and very focused on results and grades and had tons of engaged students. But I can tell you that, you know, fun was not a word that was used. And so it's not memorable. And that's another mm -hmm. word that I think yep. is not used enough is creating memorable learning experiences. And adults are the same way, again wanting memorable learning experiences just like me you're very active on twitter as well mm -hmm. and social media um and so i'm curious how you see community spaces there such as twitter facebook um mm -hmm. playing into specifically learning experience design and how can communities of practice help elevate those types of learning experiences yeah, so I'm um, very active on Twitter. I have been for a really long time. But what I will say about that, because I know that there's a lot of feelings around Twitter. Um, and those feelings change every day. You know, um, you know, we have now the word doom scrolling. Um, so I, <laughs> what I will say about Twitter is that <laughs> I love it. And I still, I use it every single day as a way to learn, grow, and share. But I will say that um, it has taken me a lot of time, a lot of following, unfollowing, making lists, honing, you know, the communities that I'm a part of through that tool for it to become um, a place for me where my thinking is inspired, challenged and pushed daily. So it, it has taken a lot of work for me to get my to, to have Twitter function in that way for me. And mm -hmm. I can use it every day and it doesn't, um, for the most part, it does bring me joy. Um, and I really, really appreciate it even more now, I think that I'm not in schools every day because it has helped me to stay 
active and really engaged and connected to all of my educator friends everywhere. Um, I can have a question and get on Twitter and within, you know, 30 minutes or an hour, I'm having people like answer questions or write me back. Um, and, and, and it's things like that, that it, it is a tool for me uh, to learn, but also to really stay connected to people. And it also helps me to connect to people that aren't necessarily a part of my um, actual community. Like there's a lot of voices and stories and experiences happening outside of Portland, Oregon. And so if I only, you know, connected with the people that are in my community, I would be losing so many opportunities to hear from other voices. And so I really enjoy that Twitter allows me to stay connected in that way. Um, but it has taken work. I mean, I, you know, I, I've been doing, I think I've been on Twitter since like, 2009. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think Twitter is great. Um, but I think it's great because of the time and work that I've put into it to try to use it as in that way. Um, I do, however, I'm glad you brought up communities of practice because I, the more that I read about communities of practice, the more that I reflect on this and I I've done, I've been doing lots of reading. I mean, that's, I love learning. And so I dive in and I, you know, I don't do something like halfway, like I want to read everything that I can get my hands on. Um, but the more that I start to think about communities of practice, because um, the word communities has been around a long time, and we have lots of different tools that we use for community building, but communities of practice to me are something different. Um, and I am so convinced that these are the spaces um, that are going to change and transform practice. Um, and the reason that I say that is because um, you know, these communities can be done in different ways, whether it's like within your organization, like participate, for instance, might have its own internal communities of practice, right? Um, or whether it's in a virtual space where we can have people from all over join a community of practice, um, or it might be a partnership between organizations, you know, like maybe a few organizations that have learning experience designers might create community of practice for those learning experience designers to, you know, deepen their knowledge or whatever. Um, but that point is to deepen knowledge, uh, to deepen your practice and to learn together. And I think one of the things for me that communities of practice do that I don't necessarily get from Twitter, like Twitter is a catalyst, it's a jumping off point, it's a connection point, but the actual community of practice offers me an agency in a different way than some of those other social tools do. Um, it offers me collegiality, it offers me support um, it gives me safe space to learn and grow and share. Um, and, you know, in a community of practice, um, it isn't going to be us just tweeting or DMing each other every once in a while. A community of practice is a space, is a group where we are dedicated to deepening that learning together. And while we might be serving different roles within that community or bringing different experiences or different knowledge to that community, we're doing it together. Um, in that space. Um, and I, I also think that a community of practice, to me, has the ability to offer um, accountability that doesn't feel evaluative. So I can be in this space and I can have colleagues, because if we're in a community of practice together, I'm considering us colleagues, right? And I can have that, um, that space to have colleagues hold me accountable um, in a way that 
doesn't feel like I'm being evaluated for my performance. Um, and I think that's really important because that's another part that, uh, or a piece of the puzzle that gives me that feeling that I can take some risks um, and that I can try to like grow and also share, share successes. You know, we can celebrate together, but we can also share when we're not successful and we can talk about that. Um, and, you know, I think that's really important. Um, uh, I see all of that as helping just to build confidence. Um, and then to me, once, you know, that learning is happening and we're building confidence, we're going to take that outside of that community of practice and that goes back into our organizations. And I just, I, I see that as being really transformational. Yeah, I think that's a critical piece of the community of practice is where that learning goes into your other areas of practice and kind of makes that sort of impact. Um, and I think it is that kind of social, the kind of co-construction of knowledge and making mm -hmm. things and doing things together. And I think that's some of the main distinctions. And we, we collaborated with Jeff Carpenter from Elon, who did a whole like survey of these different hashtags, because some are not and some are, you know, there's, yep. well, I always call the SS chat. I mean, when we were studying it, I don't, I haven't, you know, I sort of follow it here and there, but they were, there was like 15 or 20 people and they were grappling mm -hmm. with very interesting things on an ongoing basis and the same people were coming back. And I think that mm -hmm. was a really good indication um, as opposed to a bigger hashtag that's really just used as a way to kind of categorize some content. And mm -hmm. I think it was interesting. So we've had this great conversation and we've talked through lots and lots of things. And so just what do you hope for the future of learning experience design, right? And also where we all are with virtual learning for both educators and students. Where do you where do you hope we'll be? Hopefully we'll emerge out of this in some way, but I think, I think this all virtual environment is going to stay with us. And I think it's going to change a lot of the ways we work and learn for a long time. And so I'm just curious, like, what are your hopes for the future of that? Wow. I have a whole lot. Um, okay. So <laughs> one of the things with learning experience design specifically, so those of us that are literally designing those experiences um, for others, we'll say adults, um, those of us that are developing content, whatever that is. Um, one of the things that I really hope to see out of this, um, well, there's, there's two things. I really hope that we um, as practitioners can start to um, acknowledge that it isn't the facilitator or the designers, like the point is not for the facilitator or the designer's intentions to be realized. So when we go into designing things for people, you know, we have all the best intentions and we know what we're hoping to, um, the outcome to be or what we're hoping um, that this experience will be. And I just really hope that we can start focusing a little bit more on the fact that the impact is gonna happen during the experience itself. And it's going to, um, uh, we can, we have to let go of our personal intentions for whatever the experience is and seize opportunities to pivot and take advantage of teachable moments. The same exact thing that we do in our classrooms, uh, we have to be agile and flexible. And, and so I really hope that that is something as practitioners moving forward that we can um, do a better job of because I think that agility and flexibility are extremely important for teachers right now and teaching children. And so I think that if we can model that in their experience, their learning experiences, that'll be helpful. And I also really hope that we can start with listening. 
Um, I really think that we we have to find out with within schools, within districts, and and private industry, we have to figure out how to begin by listening to what not just what educators need, but also what they want. Because if we only ever give them what they need and we never give them anything that they want, they might be really engaged, like Mike said, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be having fun. Um, and so I think that's important. And then, man, for remote teaching and learning, what I hope is that I just really hope that these experiences continue to shed light on all of these equity issues, all of these issues that have been around forever, um, that some of us have um, not had to see, that we've been privileged enough not to experience. I hope that those things will continue to be brought to light and not be forgotten as things might feel like they're getting easier or getting back to the way that they were. Um, and I just, I really, really hope that we will be able to um, lean on connection with each other to try to tackle some of these things together. Um, I would just like to see us doing a lot more problem solving together rather than um, kind of waiting for someone to come up with an answer that can be replicated. You know, I'd like to see a lot more of us leaning on that connectedness that we're getting a little more comfortable with in the virtual world. Tavia, how can our audience connect with you, be it on Twitter or learn more about you anywhere else? So I'm on Twitter. It's just Tavia, T-A-V as in Victor, I-A underscore Clark. Um, I have a website, TaviaClark.com. I do not update it frequently enough, but I do have a website. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, if anyone's on LinkedIn. Um, and also uh, I have a bio page and I do some writing on the Clarity Innovations website and that's just clarity-innovations.com. Um, but Twitter is a really easy way to get in touch with me if people are using Twitter. Awesome. Tavia Clark, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was great having you on. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is the great Mike Washburn. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at, at participate. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found there at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time.